0: If you've got a Bible, grab it, open it, turn it on, go to chapter 2 of the book of Luke, and we're going to be in verse 39 this morning, or beginning in verse 39. We'll, we'll go beyond that. Uh, it's uh, interesting, between Jesus' birth and his public ministry are these 30 years of time, and, and yet this passage that we're looking at today is the only recorded event during that 30-year period. And so as we approach this, this passage, I'll let you know ahead of time, we're going we're gonna to read it in three sections. We're going to read the first two verses, uh, and then the ten verses, which is the, the most meaty part of it, and then the last two verses. And they kind of serve like uh, bookends at the beginning and the end of, of Christ's growth. So uh, as, as we do begin here, as we're jumping in, I want you to look at these first two verses as, and understand this is a transition uh, from Jesus at the point when he was 41 days old. That's the last time we saw anything in his life. Uh, to the point that he is now 12 years old. And so it's been a bit of a a jump here, Uh, or at least this is the transition here. So follow along, verse 39 of Luke chapter 2. And when they had performed everything according to the law of the Lord, they returned to Galilee, to the town of Nazareth. And the child grew and became strong, filled with wisdom, and the favor of God was upon him. The grass withers, the flower fades. <clears throat> Let's pray. Heavenly Father, uh, these words we've just read, these are your words. Written as the Holy Spirit worked through your servant Luke nearly 2,000 years ago. And this morning, God, we ask that you would enlighten our minds to, <clears throat> to understand this passage and to build our lives according to all Scripture. It's in Jesus' holy name we pray. Amen. So, after Jesus' parents performed everything according to the law of the Lord, they then returned, not to the place they had come from, Bethlehem, where Jesus was born, but to the town of, uh, of, of Nazareth in, in Galilee. This is up in the, the north portion of Israel. And Luke doesn't tell us about the, the visit of the wise men. He, he doesn't tell us about the flight to Egypt that we see in the, the other Gospels. And instead, he summarizes over that portion by saying simply that Jesus grew and became strong, filled with wisdom. Now, I'll tell you right off the bat that when I was a, a new believer in my late teens, uh, I thought that Jesus was a man on the outside, physically flesh, and that Jesus was God on the inside. That that's the way that the, that the two natures broke down. As I, and I, I thought that he only looked like a man, right? That in reality, he was, he was just God with, with this fleshy covering on him almost. And so the reality is, is that Jesus is truly God on the outside and the inside. And, and that Jesus is also truly man on the inside and the outside. See, what this means is that, that Jesus had to develop just like every child does. We, we sometimes lose his humanity when we fail to see this. See, as a baby, he put everything into his mouth in that one stage where everything goes into a baby's mouth. And then like every child, he had to learn to crawl. And then he went into that unstable, toddling stage of his life. And Jesus had a first word in his life. He had a favorite food as a child. And as he grew, he, he would have made friends and laughed with his family and, and others. And it says here, he was filled with wisdom. See, just like his body had to develop as a, as a true human, so did his mind have to develop as a true human. That's a tough thing for us to understand, I think, when we make, try to make sense of these, these two natures. See, uh, the Scottish theologian Donald MacLeod uh, put it this way. He said, Jesus had a human mind subject to the same laws of perception, memory, logic, and development as our own. He observed and learned and remembered and applied. How, how his human and divine natures functions <clears throat> raises a lot of questions for us, doesn't it? <clears throat> Sorry, I'm messing with the cough here, obviously. <clears throat> it raises the, the question, first of all, did, did Jesus know everything, <clears throat> right? Could, could Jesus have told you what these winning lottery numbers are going to be coming up? At age six, could Jesus have told you the, the airspeed velocity of a, an unladen laden, laden swallow, African or European? By, by age nine, could, could he do advanced calculus like it was nothing? By age 12, did, did he know the chemical makeup of Coca-Cola long before it ever even existed on the planet? See, this is one of those things you, you wonder about the little nature, but because of uh, what we learn throughout the New Testament in particular, the answer is simply no. That might sound weird at first, but you've got to understand this, that, that outside of special revelation from the Father by the Holy Spirit, Jesus' knowledge was, was limited to his own experience, what he learned and discovered. And you're thinking immediately right now, no, he knew things that only God could know. And you're right. See, beyond that, his Heavenly Father only revealed to him what he needed to know, which is how Jesus later will know things about people that truly only God could know. The smaller details of how all this works is one of the great mysteries in the, of the incarnation. But we, we know that just as Jesus is fully God, Jesus is fully man. Don't, don't neglect either of these aspects. So there's something incredibly applicable for us in these, in these verses too, right? We're looking at the dual nature of Jesus so much that sometimes we miss some other things. And, and, and here's what I mean, because so much of what Jesus will do in his life, so much of what we're going to see in his life, uh, will be these miraculous works that God is doing, right? But, but these three ways that we see here, and in, in, in verse, uh, uh, what is it, 40 right here in front of us, Jesus is, is shown to mature in a way that is incredibly ordinary, These aren't miraculous things happening here. Here is how how we know this. If you look at verse 40 again, uh, Jesus grew and became strong and was filled with wisdom, it says there. But but, but there's this thought. You see, in the Greek, there's no comma after those things. Between the first three statements, grew, became strong, and filled with wisdom. But there is one after those three things. um, Before this last bit of information, which our English Bibles uh, then designate as a separate sentence in English. Because it's a new thought, the the information is is set apart in that sentence that reads, "And the favor of God was upon him," not because the favor of God was upon him, but rather, and the favor of God was upon, upon him. And and here's why this matters: because only only the last bit is is extraordinary here. Well, the first three observation about Jesus are are ordinary results of God blessing ordinary godly parenting this is not an exhaustive list here but from it we can gain a better understanding as our call of parents and that's for you that are parents but those of you that aren't it's your call as a parent someday if God blesses you in that way first thing we see here is that Jesus grew and this might sound so simple that you think this doesn't belong in a sermon it's so obvious but uh, but we're called to provide that what our children need to physically grow thank you is that hot coffee or water? <laughs> um, yeah, water, right? Things we need to grow. Uh, something besides Mountain Dew to your children. Uh, healthy food. Uh, that we ensure that our children are able to get enough sleep so that their bodies can grow in the way that God designs them to be. Uh, and of course, that we simply provide a home that is, that is safe and offers protection to our children. And so, uh, you know, the first thing here is that our calling is simply to provide where our children's need to grow physically. The second thing we see here is that Jesus grew strong. This tells us that he wasn't entitled, he wasn't uh, lazy Nobody grows strong if they, if they sit around all day doing absolutely nothing. Jesus, as a boy then, must have learned to serve and to contribute. Uh, we know his father was a carpenter. We know that Jesus becomes a carpenter. What does that tell you? He had to learn the trade from his dad uh, as he went through life. Parents, teach your children to work, to help in the home, cleaning, yard work, making dinner, etc., we, we, we use the phrase, everybody rose in our house. And, and what we mean by that is nobody gets to, to be, as the comedian once said, a, a non-contributing zero. You contribute. The third thing we, we see here is that Jesus was filled with wisdom. And understand, this goes much deeper than mere knowledge. That's not what, what this is about when it says wisdom in Scripture. This, this is about, uh, you know, not about knowing multiplication tables. It's not about being able to diagram a, a sentence properly. It's not about knowing uh, the name of every president that's ever united existed. Those are good things. Learn those things. But this is specifically about wisdom. Teaching your children right from wrong. Teaching how to handle temptation or weird social situations or how to think biblically about what they hear and and see and and listen to on radio and on TV. Teaching them how how to use money wisely and in such a way that honors God. Helping them to apply biblical knowledge to a million real life situations. And so Jesus had godly parents in Mary and Joseph, but, but also Christ had, Jesus had God the Father, the first person of the Holy Trinity, Trinity, who has placed his favor on Jesus. That's one of the unique things we see there. And you, you can't provide that for your child. You, you can't provide the favor of God ultimately, but you can pray for God's favor. If you don't already do so, include that in the way that you pray for your children. So let's look again to your Bible as we read. We're going to be picking up now that Jesus is, is 12 years old. Follow along, verse 41. Now, his parents went to Jerusalem every year at the feast of the Passover. And when he was 12 years old, they went up according to custom. And when the feast was ended, as they were returning, the boy Jesus stayed behind in Jerusalem. His parents did not know it. But supposing him to be in the group, they went a day's journey Behold, your father and I have been searching for you in, the, in great distress. And he said to them, why were you looking for me? Did you not know that I must be in my father's house? And they did not understand the saying that was spoke to them. We'll stop right there. I think I'm a little too far even. Um, in Exodus 23, 15, God commands Israel to to come together as a a nation, as his people, three times every single year for these three unique feasts. Uh, The first of those feasts was the Passover, which they're going to here. In our calendar, it takes place about April every year. Uh, And and the requirement was only that Joseph went every year, only the the father of the household. But he brought his entire family every single year, we see here. This is significant because we know that they're poor. We know that it's a difficult thing, particularly in their era, to stop. Uh, at least 10 days it would have taken to, 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 to do this whole trip. Uh, very inconvenient to, to travel that, that far and that long. Clearly, we, we see it was a priority in their family to worship God, to, to model obedience to their children, to participate in what God has instituted for their spiritual good. You know, we, we look at that, we don't celebrate these, these feasts in the same way, but after the resurrection, one of the most comparable things we, we, we could compare this to is, is making Sunday worship a priority for our families. Um, especially since, since the Passover reminded God's people how he had rescued him. That's the story that they're going to hear every single time they participated. You see, Jesus and his siblings, he's 12 years old, they're most likely were siblings at this point, we know there are siblings at least later, uh, but they would have watched their father Joseph prepare the lamb for sacrifice. They, they listened to the story of God setting Israel free from Egypt, Egyptian slavery. It, it taught them to, to love God. This participation in this taught them how, how much God loves his people, including them. And so this particular year, Jesus is a 12 year old. Yeah. How many of you know what a 12 year old looks like? A couple of you. Some of you act like a 12. I mean what a 12-year-old looks like. Um, I, I asked that because when I was younger, we, we, or when our children were younger, I guess I was younger too, uh, every so often, I don't know why, but strangers at the park or the store would want to guess their ages. And, and this taught me very quickly that men are terrible at guessing the ages of children. Um, and so you women, you, you already know what a 12-year-old looks like. But, but men, uh, my son who was helping with the offering this morning, he is a 12-year-old. If you can't quite picture that, just imagine when you were in seventh grade. That's about 12 years old. That's the age that Jesus is at this, at this time. And so um, you, you see there in, in, in verse 42 there, look at that. Uh, the word custom is mentioned there. The, the custom talking about here is, is that you bring your son to the Passover feast uh, at about 12 years old because it's a year before his bar mitzvah, which happens on the 13th year of, of a child's life. And bar mitzvah was a Jewish tradition, and in Hebrew it just means son of the commandment. And it marks that a child is now being considered, not a child, but going to be considered as a full-fledged adult in the Jewish community. Right? You can get into a lot about how much younger that is than in our culture when we do it. But um, just for the sake of understanding what that's talking about there. And so then they've traveled these 70 miles from Nazareth to the temple in this great caravan, this massive group of people that went together for protection, for community. Uh, that was just how they did it, because they're mostly on foot, maybe a few animals along the way. And, and after seven days in Jerusalem, the, the caravan heads home, and Jesus isn't with them. It's easy to lose children when traveling in groups. Um, after all, that's, that's the whole premise of Home Alone, Right? is how easy it is to lose a a child in a group. I'll I'll tell you a story. When I was uh, a young boy, my my dad was a coach of a soccer team, my brother's soccer team, about four or five years between me and the the two of them. And he took a whole truck full of people to the soccer tournament that was nearby. And and remember, this is the era of uh, nobody wore seatbelts at all. So this is just as many kids as you can pack into this big suburban. Um, And when we arrived, my my father went to co coach the team. I was little, so I just wandered off and and took care of myself. I I managed to find someone's goat that had run away uh, and decided this was now my goat. I I named him, though I can't remember what his name was, and and I tied the remains of one of those stranded plastic uh, flag things around his neck to make a leash. Uh, and led him back to the game. The, the goat and I then watched the remainder of the game just sitting on the sidelines there. Uh, and I can never forget that after the, after the, uh, the tournament, I, I made this request, Dad, I have a goat. I want to bring him home. He, he's my goat now. Um, you can imagine that was rejected. I was told, take the goat back where you found him. And I went to go do that. I, I took him back, and, and then I made it back to the parking lot uh, just in time to see our big red suburban disappearing down a gravel road. And I remember thinking, how could my dad leave me? I came later to find out that uh, they'd actually done a head count in the car, only they had managed to pick up another player on the way home that day, uh, which, you know, the solid math involved in that left me uh, crying in a cloud of dust, telling some stranger, I have no idea where I live, I have no idea what my phone number is, uh, thinking I was lost forever. So uh, eventually he does come back, and he, he gets me, Right? Uh, he comes and picks me up. It, it was, now, now, this is the thing with Jesus and this caravan. It's even easier to realize that Jesus wasn't with them that day. These, these caravans would be a massive group of people walking, kind of like you picture when you, when you leave a sporting event and there's just a massive group of people going out those gates. And, and the custom in these caravans was that the, the women would go ahead with, with all the young children with them, and they would go together. And the men would be in the back And the older children, who weren't really little, could go either direction. They could go with the men. They could go with the women. And so it had been easy for Mary and Joseph to just both assume he was with the other one. And then when they they get to the place in the evening where it's prearranged, you know, let's everyone meet back up together. Suddenly Mary and Joseph are together and they realize Jesus is not here. Um... That's, that's what's going on. Now, now, for Jesus, though, it's not a mistake. He didn't just get left behind. Jesus is intentionally back there. Look at verse 43. Jesus, you know, he didn't just zone out like you might imagine your, your children doing. He, he says that he stayed behind. He stayed behind. He's intentionally remained in Jerusalem. And so his parents then have traveled away from Jerusalem for, for a day. That's about 20 miles, by, you know, 20 miles by foot or car. I guess 20 miles the same either way. Um, and, and they realize he's gone. And so the next day they travel back the distance they've gone. So they've now gone 40 days to go back. And then day three they begin to search the city. A city of around 600,000 people at this time. And, and eventually they come to the temple complex and, and there Jesus is. Sitting with the teacher's listening, asking questions. It, it, it's as if you, you left your child in, in St. Louis, and, and then two days later, you finally get back to St. Louis to look for them, and you're, they're, they're not in City Museum, they're not at Fitz's Soda Fountain, uh, you, you look, they're not at Crown Candy Kitchen, all the places you might expect them, and eventually you, you, you check over at Covenant Seminary, and you peek into this classroom, and there is your 12-year-old, sitting with seminary professors, having an intelligent conversation. He's in there just listening, but he but also has this profound understanding of the scriptures. And, and again, this is part of that divine mystery of, of God's human nature and his divine, or Jesus' human nature and divine nature. If we look closely here, though, we can learn something about discipleship ourselves. You, you see, Jesus is learning, right? But he's learning how by asking questions and by listening there in verse 46. And in the following verse, he's he's answering their questions. You understand what that's describing? This 12-year-old Jesus is dialoguing with these men. Now, there's two ways we should apply this. The the, the first is in general for for all of us across the board. The second one will be for parents. i will get to that later. But, But people often wonder, I have these conversations, you know, how do I tell someone about the gospel? How do I sit down and, and have a one-on-one conversation? How do I just start some gospel presentation and begin talking about that? And, and, and the question we really need to start, start asking ourselves as Christians is, is how do we ask good questions before how do we present that? How, how do we develop wisdom to begin good dialogue? Right? Maybe questions at some point. What do, you, what do you believe about God? If you're bold enough to ask one that you know, at some point in the conversation. Or as simple as, you know, did your family go to church growing up? What do you think of it? Then listening to people's answers. Because I, I know and you know that, that, that we already know that they need Jesus if they don't have Jesus. But you need to know who they are if you're going to know how to show them that they need Jesus. I was listening to the Gospel Coalition podcast this past week, and there's a woman named uh, Becky Lippert. Uh, not to be confused with the Lippards here, uh, I don't think. On, and anyway, she's talking about how to talk about Jesus without sounding religious. And she shared this story during the course of it of, of being on an airplane uh, and this conversation with an unbelieving woman next to her. And, and during their conversation, this, this woman said that she believes in the essential goodness of all people. And so instead of turning to her and saying, that's the stupidest thing I've ever heard, like some people might be tempted to say, she asked a question. See, this is dialogue. But Becky asked this question. She said, what do you think about the state of the world? How are we doing? And the woman responded, oh, the world is falling apart. It is an absolute mess. And so Becky asked a follow up question. She said, how is that possible when the world is full of good people? And the woman's response is, that is a very good question. And suddenly, they're together in this conversation, trying to make sense uh, of this issue. The conversation goes goes forward until this woman, as the plane lands, asks, you know, can we continue this conversation over email? Because this is really interesting. She drew her in. And I I share this because I want you to see the the value of wise dialogue. It's not easy, right? There's no set thing, you can't just pull out something and, and know it goes that way to start developing this idea of wise dialogue to, to enter into a conversation you know, don't, don't just say what your opinion is and be like, there I said my piece, I'm good uh, instead try to draw people into a conversation by asking questions and, and really listening most will eventually ask will eventually ask you what are your thoughts on this and I don't just mean that we dialogue with unbelievers on a plane either um, but with your friends, with your spouses, with your neighbors, you know, hey, these things work better when you're getting up one on one with just about anybody or in a small group. But, but learn the, the, the practice of asking questions, and this is important, and listening to answers, thoughtfully answering questions. This, this is all part of what's dialoguing. Now, the second application of this is, is to parents specifically, to, to moms and dads, you know, to ask this question do you dialogue with your children? Because it's so easy as parents to just spit out the answer and be done with it. And I mean both young children and grown children, right? Do you ask thoughtful questions about the world they observe, about the scriptures that they're reading, about uh, the emotions and the feelings that they are discovering? Parents, do you, you should be the safest place on the entire planet for your children to ask questions. For them to think through difficult answers, to, to wrestle with emotions. And so when they ask about rainbow flags in the parade or or the Mormons who knocked on the door. Or a real life experience of the problem of evil that we see all over the place. You know, ask your son, ask your daughter, what, what do you think about that? And listen. You know, follow up. Based on the scriptures, what do you think God thinks about that? Dialogue with your children at every stage of life, even about things that might not seem spiritual in nature. Oh, she said that to you. What, what do you think of that? how does that make you feel? And, and I'll add here, you, you other adults, right? Even if, you're, you know, if you don't have children or they're not here, they're grown, they're away. Any chance that you have to, to dialogue, to ask questions, interact with our covenant children and ask thoughtful questions, do so. Seriously, it's a, it's a great way to keep the vow that we make every time we have a covenant baptism to assist the right in the discipleship of these children. And so then our, our passage here, there in verses 47 and 48, we, we see theologically trained adults are amazed at Jesus and his wise questions and his answers. His parents were also astonished. That, that Greek word there, uh, rendered astonished here, it's, it's used 13 times in the New Testament, and, and 12 of those, all but one of them, is used in response to the teaching of Jesus. The only other one is when he cast a demon out of a man that, that someone looks on as an astonished. Uh, simply put, astonished actually has some technical stuff to it. It, it means the, the, the sort of statement that is hard to believe, yet is believable. That's what they're astonished about. And we see here that that Mary is indeed relieved to have found her 12-year-old son. She's astonished, and yet not so astonished as to keep her from being angry at Jesus for staying in Jerusalem. Right? If you've ever lost a child, even for a few moments, you understand this feeling, that emotion of gratitude. Oh, you're okay. That immediately shifts into anger that, what is wrong with you? Why did you make me go through this? Um, why are you just carrying on life happy when I've been worried all this time? And that, that's, that's why she asked him, Son, why have you treated us so? Behold, your father and I have been searching for you in great distress. And when Jesus tells her that, that they should have known that he was in his father's house, he's not being disrespectful. He's not. It's a genuine statement he's making there. He's, he's revealing to them in this moment that he knows who he is, that he is the Son of God. Mary knew this already, right? Gabriel told her that. She knows that her son is the son of God before his birth. She she knows how the the pregnancy came about, but but it appears she doesn't know that Jesus knows this about himself. Now, Now she knows, even though she's greatly confused by Jesus saying this in this moment. Perhaps she's confused, how does he know this? Where did he learn this? What does this mean now that he knows this? And now when Jesus calls God his, his personal father here, that is, that's enormous. Now, you see, in the Old Testament, Israel at times spoke of God as their father, this collective idea of he is our father. But no individual up to this point has ever referred to God as his father. This was unheard of. Astonishing, right? But true. Jesus is a man, but also God, as he is uniquely the second person of the Trinity, the Son of God. We're going to see that unfold all throughout the rest of Luke. And so then, uh, let's let's move on to these last two verses here that that bring us to the end of chapter 2, verses 51. Follow along as I read them. And he went down with them and came to Nazareth and was submissive to them. And his mother treasured up all these things in her heart. And Jesus increased in wisdom and in stature and in favor with God and man. And so they return home together. You can imagine a three to four day travel as they go. And we're told that Jesus was submissive to them. What an odd little detail. Why include that in there? What's the significance here? A lot of ways it's because it's you might expect otherwise now. They they were astonished at his teaching in the temple. They're astonished that he knows that he's the Son of God. They're they're seeing him kind of come into his own at this point. And and, and you realize that. I mean, you realize how bizarre this is. it, It just blows me away that the Lord of Lords, the King of Kings, God incarnate, submits himself to Mary and Joseph. A more lopsided submission could not exist. He is wiser, more, peer, more powerful. He is superior in every single way. And yet, here he is submitting himself to them as their child. And it's so important that Luke makes sure that little phrase is included in here, that we understand that. He does this because submission isn't about superiority, it's not. Um, it's about God given order and structure, our, our submission to the law of the land, right? Our submission, or the, the submission of children to parents or employees, to, to, to bosses, wives to husbands, students, to professors, submitting to the people that God has placed in positions of authority is a way that we serve God and honor God. That's what Jesus is about, and that's what Jesus is modeling for us in this. Perfectly. So then in verse 51, we we see. Like all worried parents, Mary's frustration eventually faded. And she treasures up everything that she has learned about her blessed son. R- remember, the, the first two verses today really summarize Jesus as he went from a baby to a 12-year-old. And these last two verses are, are summarizing how Jesus goes from a 12-year-old to a man. We don't see much of it. Um, and, but we do see this, that Jesus matures and he grows in those four ways. And, in wisdom continues to grow in wisdom. We can assume his parents and others had a a big part in that, as they taught him. In in years, meaning he simply progresses in in age, he matures in favor with God and in favor with man. Next time that we're going to see Jesus is in the book of Luke. He's going to be 30 years old. Beginning his public ministry, but but what a precious picture we get right here in the the book of Luke and in our passage today of our, our Lord as a a developing 12-year-old boy. I hope we'll treasure it as much as, as Mary does there at the end, looking back on this. Let us pray. Lord God Almighty, may we be amazed at Jesus, at his wisdom even from a young age, at his life of perfection and his death of sacrifice and his resurrection power that by grace through faith is ours as well. Lord, no matter our age, we ask that you would grow us in wisdom as we continue to learn to to walk with you, to submit our ways to your ways. It's in Jesus' holy name that we pray. Amen.